goofy thing. I'll check the touch base with you later. Thank you. Um, Mike's just have to flip them on when you're ready to, to, uh, to go. So call to order. Uh, special Legislative Review Committee meeting, Tuesday, November 12th, 10 a.m. President uh, Council Member Cox and Council Member Riley. <laughs> um, we'll fix that. So a number of um, items on your agenda for consideration today. Happy to take them in whatever order uh, you would like. I, I would actually recommend maybe we start with the housing issue. Then we'll have um, community development staff join us in a couple minutes on the marijuana regulations. And then the director of public works um, wants to join us on the modifications to procedures for public works projects, as well as the trees and views issue. And I think it would be helpful to have him here for the PG&E sure. uh, topic as well. Um, so if you'd like, I'll go ahead and kind of dive into the overview of the housing issue and we can go from there. Sure. So um, as you well know, number of kind of sweeping housing um, pieces of legislation passed this last se uh, session signed into law by the governor. Uh, changes that are coming down the pipe include kind of revisions to the ADU regulations. Um, this also dovetails with the recommendations from the Blue Ribbon Task Force that Councilmember Cox um, formed and had uh, a number of things they wanted the city to consider. And, and it kind of fits right in with some of the things that have come down the pipeline from the, from the state. So I've been in contact with Barbara Couts. I've asked for their um, housing update. A lot of law firms, the bigger law firms, have put out you know, kind of a summary of what's happened um, with the housing laws that I can send to you guys. They've also, Barb has also, they haven't done one yet. Her firm, Barb Couts, does a lot of uh, housing work for us. Um, and she's pretty well known in the housing legal world. Uh, she's with Goldfarb and Lipman. They haven't finalized their um, overview or their summary memo, but as soon as we get it, I will get it over to you. She did send me some um, documents that she's prepared regarding the changes to the ADU regulations. And I know that a number of firms, including hers, have discussed with uh, their clients about putting a moratorium in effect or an urgency measure to prevent um, any conflict with state law until we get the new our new regulations in place. It's my understanding that while they've been making that recommendation, not a lot of people have been doing it. They've been pushing forward trying to get their own regulations amended first. Uh, and you know, if there's a brief period of time, maybe in January, where they're not effective, we would have to apply state law anyway. But it does seem to be something we could consider, and that's something we could bring to you, you know, on the 10th. If not, the 10th would get it in place on time, December 10th. December 10th. And, and if we can work quickly enough, we could potentially bring you um, our ADU ordinance at the same time. So you put it in place both as a, you know, an urgency measure and as a uh, regular ordinance. I know um, Council Member Cox, you've probably seen jurisdictions do that a number of times. So an urgency measure uh, basically means that the ordinance goes into effect right away. There are certain findings the council has to make and it has to be by a four-fifths vote to say due to health, safety, welfare concerns, we want to get these regulations in place immediately instead of the typical first read, second read, and then it becomes effective 30 days later, which is the standard ordinance adoption procedure. Um, so that's something we can explore further if we meet again in a couple weeks. Can you summarize for me just the gap between our current ADU ordinance and what we think is coming from the state and what we're trying to close? I need to go back and look at all the details that I've gotten from um, Barb. I know that what they're doing is making it um, easier to get an ADU uh, permit and they're at lowering the 
at the city. So what the state has imposed are regulations saying you city have less authority to prevent ADUs from being developed. Sorry. That's okay. We actually, we, the city of Sausalito, adopted um, our revisions to our ADU ordinance a year ago, Joan, two years ago, um, with some you know, health and safety findings regarding parking areas. Um, so we're, we just have to go back and look at what we've got and then compare it to what the state is mandating and make sure we're in alignment. And so we'll think we'll have that by the 10th. I think we could. I think it's. I think we potentially could. So I think what it would be helpful is for us to meet again. Um, well, that'd be the week right before Thanksgiving. Maybe that. That might be a tough week for people. But either that or immediately thereafter, um, so that we could tell you where we are with our drafts. Does that make sense to you, Joan? It's really late this year. So on the 25th, uh, we have an MCC, MC Legislative Committee meeting at 8 a.m. in San Rafael. Okay. And But I could meet right after that. Do you know if that works for you? That's Monday the 25th. Yes. So that goes 8 to 9, so we could meet at 9, 9.30 perhaps. Okay. Aren't you you're in San Rafael? San Rafael. Here, okay, perfect. And while we're talking about this, let me pull up the information I received from Barbara Couts on the ADUs, and I can give you a little more background. Joan, were there other things from the uh, Blue Ribbon Task Force that we should add to this list? Yes. Um, <clears throat> send you that document too. Yeah, one of the main things from the Blue Ribbon Task Force was to make our zoning ordinance provisions more standards, more objective and less subjective. And we had some pretty specifically outlined uh, recommended approaches for that. And that would dovetail nicely with some of the uh, uh, 19 bills signed by Governor Newsom. Great. And I know Lily was working with the county on that grant that yes. we had received. So the county was doing a countywide um, program using some grant funding that had come through to each jurisdiction. And I believe one of the items that they were considering and I think are moving forward with was this um, turning zoning regulations into more objective versus subjective standards, which is what some of the changes to the law have been. So instead of you know, neighborhood character, for example, you would have to quantify what that means. So that's anybody looking at it could say, yes, that works, or no, that doesn't work. Um, that's and how would we use the grant funding to help us here? I believe they're hiring um, a consultant, and it might be an attorney consultant, to look at kind of countywide provisions that are in most zoning to ordinances. To what more objective means? Yes. To come up with some recommendations on revisions to the zoning ordinance. So, for example, um, one standard is our views, right. and right now we say, you know, no one is entitled to a panoramic view, but the evaluation of whether a proposed project inter significantly interferes with someone's views is purely subjective. And what we would try to do is say, 
you know, if you have this wide of view corridor now, as so long as it's not reduced by more than X percentage or so long as it remains at some objective standard so that someone submitting an application will know even before they submit the application whether it's likely to be okay. granted. Okay. Yes. We have some of the most already objective standards, you know, clearly we define height or feet yeah, or yeah. whatever. So, but the, the more subjective ones are, um, we can't really apply them any longer, so we have to look at cleaning them up while still trying to maintain I understand. the neighborhoods. Yeah. Okay. Um, so those are kind of the topics. We're talking, uh, Calvin and Steve, about the changes to the housing laws and the ADU regulations that are coming down the pipeline, um, and also switching standards in the zoning ordinance to become more objective and less subjective. Um, and I don't know if you, Steve, in particular, have any rec um, observations on what any other jurisdictions have been doing in that regard. If you want to come up sure. here. Actually, the, um, Can you come up here? go middle. <laughs> so I need the right shotgun. Tom, I'm going to forward to you um, our grant application, uh, the SB2 grant application, uh, as well as some of our Blue Ribbon Committee recommendations that we thought we could um, obtain grant funding for. Good. May I'll I ask, what's the, do we know the status of that grant funding? I do not know. I do not this is something that I'm Lily was working out. on jul in July, mm -hmm. so I don't know what the status is. But nice I'm copying you on this, Mary, so you Thank can you. follow up. Steve, did you have any observations on what other jurisdictions have been doing? Uh, with regard to the objective design guidelines, um, the county has taken on um, a number of consultants to help kind of standardize those objectives, so it's um, objective design and development standards is what they're calling odds. So um, all the different uh, cities and, and towns in the county are participating in this process. And they're kind of pooling their uh, resources. Everybody's applied for SB2 funding and they're using that money to pay for the consultants to do the studies. So what they're doing right now is they're doing an inventory of different properties around the county um, so that they can start to develop some uh, standardization to the design guidelines and development standards. So it's kind of in its infancy right now. And when we look at like the county and the standards they'll come up, there must be things that are so unique to Sausalito as well, right? That we would have to do in addition to those. Absolutely, yeah. And that's where we'd use our portion of grant funding is what's unique to Sausalito and specific? Right. Okay. Well, I know that, I mean, the concept, we've, we've entered into an agreement with the county, with, and as did other jurisdictions, to provide those grant funds to the county. Yep. And I don't know what portion, if any, we've retained, but we'll, we'll run that to ground and be able to let you know um, where that stands. Yeah, the, uh, the consultants just came out with their, um, their proposals for costs, additional costs, more workshops, um, more outreach for communities, um, additional, you know, development standards uh, specialized for whatever communities they're working in. So it's kind of like a, a mix and match. Um, but right now we haven't decided what, to what extent we're going to do that. Okay. We'll try and get you a status update on where 
where that stands and where it's going and how long it's going to take. If that makes sense. To you. Yes, with me. Okay. Oh, good. Yeah. Right. I think that's kind of the housing um, overview, the housing issue overview. Um, we had talked before you guys came in about the changes to the ADU law. Right. And that some jurisdictions are actually adopting urgency measures um, so that they can get their updated regulations in place. Um, because the new law is going to affect January 1. That's right. In a lot of cities, there's a letter campaign going on right now countywide to ask the governor to rescind that, that law. So we may want to jump on that uh, that bandwagon. And totally agree. So let's that put on. that on our agenda, um, Mary, for our next legislative committee meeting, but also for our December 10 agenda, city council agenda. What is your last name? I apologize. It's Flint, F-L-I-N-T. Okay, thanks. No Y, just Y, just an I. <laughs> Do you want to shift to marijuana? Sure. So I've asked um, these guys to be here for that also. They've had conversations with the entities who came to your council meeting when you last discussed this topic, who are asking for storefront um, marijuana uh, regulations to be put in place to allow those types of establishments. Um, I can let Calvin fill you in on what those conversations have been. And I also wanted to summarize and bring back this concept of the non-storefront and development agreement that the council has discussed a few times. Calvin also met with the organization that had come to your council meeting and asked uh, to look into that. Uh, I believe they've explored a couple of areas um, for the location of a non-storefront marijuana business. May I ask a question? Mm -hmm. In these discussions, storefront, we've had discussions with people that came to our city council. In non-storefront, we've had discussions. Are those the same people? Well, the, no the non-storefront people were different. Different, okay, that's all I needed. But, but they have also now indicated that it's not financially feasible for them to run a non-storefront operation, and they're also asking to have either a combination of a non-storefront and storefront operation, I believe, but let me um, let Calvin fill you in on those conversations. Thank you, Mary. So in total, we have about three different entities. Uh, one is called Element 7, which is interested in non-storefront. One is called Fume, and this is the entity that uh, Mary um, just described that previously What's came What's the first one? Something 7? Uh, element 7, non-storefront. Uh -huh. And the other one is? Uh, the other one is Fume, F-U-M, and then with uh, accent mark over the E. Um, so Fume is the entity that Mary was just describing. They initially came to council and um, desired for us to look into non-storefront, and they were the ones that suggested the um, development agreement uh, option and also raised that they had previously successfully completed that in Clear Lake and gave us that example. Yeah. Um, in recent days, we've had conversations with Fume, and they have shifted their uh, business proposal they have indicated to us that non-storefront is not financially feasible for them, so they would be looking to having a storefront component um, in combination with non-storefront or just purely storefront. Um, in the past, they were looking at different locations in the Marin ship, mm -hmm. and they actually reached out and talked to different um, business owners there, and it seemed like they had a place, um, but then ultimately they figured out that uh, non-storefront wasn't something that would be in their best interest. Mm -hmm. The, the more recent proposal is from this company called Otter Brands, O-T-T-E-R. Um, they are proposing storefront. Uh, and it's element seven is non-storefront. Non-storefront. 
So element seven right now is our only non-storefront applicant. Correct. And we may, may I just ask yes. them, Fumé, um, they operate a non-storefront in Clear Lake? Yes. So why is it feasible in Clear Lake for non-storefront and not in Sausalito for non-storefront? Uh, I believe the rental costs are a lot higher here. Um, currently, Fumé works with um, cannabis delivery companies such as Ease to do... Called um, what? Ease, E-A-Z-E. Um, so they are the provider for Ease, which is a really large uh, Bay Area cannabis delivery company, and they actually deliver into Sausalito, which is what we allow um, by our regulations to do. Um, most recently, Autobrands, they gave us, uh, I would call it like an executive summary of their proposal for a storefront um, cannabis retail shop. Um, they are looking to locate at 3000 Bridgeway, so that's Otter Brands at 3000 Bridgeway. Element 7, earlier this year, they had identified a location at 2900 Bridgeway. And Fume, we have told them um, after their conversations about transitioning from non-storefront to storefront, um, about coming up, coming to us with an executive summary and giving us some proposal or some information to work off of. We have not yet received their What is at 2900 Bridgeway? Just uh, remind I'd me. have to look it up on... Well, where, about where on Bridgeway is that near? So, um, CrossFit Sausalito is 3001 Bridgeway. What is a uh, CrossFit? CrossFit Sausalito. It's so right at the entrance yeah. to town. Yeah. And then 3000 Bridgeway, where Otter Brands would like to locate a storefront. I believe that's where Louise Deli is, yeah. approximately, in that area. And Fume is interested. They don't, we don't know yet where they're wanting to locate. Now, if I recall, um, our original desire was to pursue a development plan with non-storefront uh, and have discussions with people with storefronts where you can learn, but the goal was to pursue a development plan with non-storefront. So it seems like it's still progressing with element seven. Um, and how are those discussions and where are we at with element seven? And, and how are we, where are we at with the research about using a development agreement as the approach for um, allowing this use? So with Element 7, they submitted their application, um, or not application, but this binder of proposals um, before the summer, and then after the summer, um, we, haven't, we haven't gotten back to them yet with this development agreement option. Uh, we wanted to have some more discussions about whether or not this was feasible and something that we wanted to pursue. Okay, but you were gonna do some research about the feasibility of the development agreement approach, which they've used elsewhere. So what's the outcome of, because you said that back in March. So, so what's the outcome of that research? So Fume is the one that proposed that, uh -huh. right, because then that was based on their um, experience in Clear Lake. Mm -hmm. um, we looked into it conceptually and think that it's a viable option if the city wants to pursue that still. You can um, potentially bring back an item that describes to you what that would look like. If Sausalito hasn't done a development agreement since I've been here, with bigger jurisdictions, might use them more frequently. Um, so it'd be a little bit of an anomaly, but that doesn't mean it's not a viable option. You know, basically what it does, it allows you, it allows the, um, the developer, for lack of a better word, the business owner, to lock in applicable, reg applicable regulations as of a certain date. So it says this is what's been applied to your um, business. 
from a zoning perspective, from a city rules perspective. The tax issue is something that the council was interested in, right? Can we impose a fee on this type of development agreement um, because our ability to impose tax has been significantly um, diminished? I think that's also a viable option through a development agreement. So I think that you know, this is a different area than what the council was previously thinking about when Fume came in. They clearly were pretty um, either focused on or directed to the Marinship as an opportunity for them. This is a much different uh, location on Bridgeway than in, in a much more different type of area. It doesn't mean it's not viable or not an option, just a different kind of zoning zoned area. Can, can I just sure. pause? I didn't have Fume looking at a place on Bridgeway. I, I saw Otterbrand's proposing 3,000 Bridgeway, but that's storefront. Element 7 proposed 2,900 Bridgeway, but that's non-storefront. But right. Fume was looking at a location in the Marinship. In the Marinship. Yeah. But they're now saying they need a storefront. But that fell through. The Marinship dialogue fell through. Okay. Okay. But they've not identified an alternative potential location. They've simply notified us that non-storefront is no longer an option for them. At least not purely non-storefront. Yeah. Correct. So I think um, we did do sort of a development agreement, Mary, or a, a hybrid for the Valhalla property. Um, they came through as a planned unit development, yeah. not really a development agreement, something right. that's allowed in our zoning ordinance, but correct, that yeah. was a little bit of an anomaly correct. from how we normally yeah. process projects. Right. Um, and that was a unique, definitely a unique yes. um, process for but, that project. But, we but did, yeah, there's other, other We did types. utilize some mechanisms in that project that we could perhaps also use for a development agreement for potentially. Like very, very yeah. different animal. Mm -hmm. Planned unit development is just a different zoning process. Sure. Um, development agreement literally is, as you well know, a negotiated agreement um, with a particular business. So it, it's certainly an option we can continue to pursue. Um, I think as we get more and more into the storefront discussion, if that's where the council wants to go, you really should think about looking at changes to the zoning ordinance if you want to allow that type of so that there's a, a broader discussion about areas where they're appropriate, areas where they might not be appropriate. Um, you know, if you have a concentration of use kind of argument, like we've had discussions with liquor stores before, and there's a lot of discussion with convenience stores, which we don't have, but you know, like the, the gas station, um, liquor mart, um, there's a lot of concentration issues that come up there where you don't want them all in one area necessarily. So I think there's a broader zoning discussion to be had if you really want to start non-storefront and storefront uses. Another challenge I want to remind us of for a development agreement is the issue of vested rights. So as soon as you have a development agreement, as soon as, and the law is evolving in terms of how quickly rights may vest, mm -hmm. which is a trap for the unwary, so that's something we would have to be very cautious about in terms of enunciating when what rights would vest such that we would not be able to modify our development agreement in certain ways moving forward. So that's something we should carefully consider as we're considering that potential approach. So do you think that's still an option that you want to pursue, the development agreement option with this Bridgeway location? We can certainly have the discussion with Element 7, but you know, it's, it's evolved 
the, the discussion around cannabis has certainly evolved at the council level. I think a location on Bridgeway is a very different animal from a location in the marine ship. And so I, my recommendation would be to not pursue that via development agreement, it's particularly given the e evolution of the law regarding the developer's rights mm -hmm. under a development agreement and the lack of flexibility that the city may ultimately have with a development agreement, particularly if it's not in the marineship. So I, I would recommend that we pursue that dialogue through a zoning discussion, not a development agreement. But that would just be my personal recommendation. That's obviously a decision for the council. I also think you can't conflate non-storefront and storefront, right? right? Very different uses. It's uh, very, very different uses and, um, and have very different reactions from the community. A non-storefront, I think, is going to be less concerning where it's located than a storefront. Um, and my understanding from my short time on the council was that the direction is let's pursue a non-storefront opportunity. And it appears there's one from element seven and two organizations that pursue, pursue storefronts. I'd like to see us, I'd like to understand element seven's proposal and um, is that a viable option to do development agreement? Going down the storefront, while there is discussion, I think it's going to be uh, you know, involve a lot of community input. Mm -hmm. okay. So it sounds like maybe what we need to do, you guys agree, is bring something back to you when we meet again that would kind of outline what a development agreement would look like, the proposal, we get you the proposal, um, and then kind of options of bringing things forward for the council for consideration, if that's the direction that some kind of community process to discuss marijuana regulations, changes to marijuana regulations. Does that make sense to you guys? Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Excellent. Anything else from your perspective? Would you like me to reach out to Element 7 to confirm that they are still interested and want to pursue this? Yeah, I think that'd be a good idea. Having a, a negotiation with ourselves otherwise, right? Okay. Thank I, you. I will do that. Excellent. Mary, may uh -huh. I return to the ADU discussion? Of course. I just found some materials that I had wanted to refer to. So I have uh, four provisions of major ADU bills that I believe we should be concerned about. One is Section 1.3 of AB 68, which amends um, 65852.2. The second is section two of AB 68, which amends the junior ADU provisions. The third is section three of SB 13, which adds health and safety code 17980.12 regarding building standards. And the fourth is section 2.5 of AB 881, which becomes operative on January 1, uh, 2025 and amends 65852.2. Then in terms of consideration of an urgency ordinance, mm -hmm. um, three things to consider. One, 
is there a real health safety welfare justification? Two, local severability clauses may apply. And three, adopting an urgency ordinance may actually draw more attention to these issues. Um, then, uh, with respect to ADUs, under the new legislation, three types of ADUs remain, detached, attached, and uh, internal conversion, which is uh, our junior ADU, yeah. There are different size limitations for each. Um, there's a uh, conflict between AB 68 and SB 13 on the minimum size of 800 square feet and 16 foot height versus minimum size 850 square feet. Uh, it was recommended 800 per the legislative intent, but it ended up at 850. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a conflict in the ordinance, in the two ordinances. And then um, uh, uh, several other topics. Subdivision A, uh, versus subdivision E regarding ADUs. So state law now contemplates all three categories of ADUs in both subdivisions A and E. But subdivision A can impose standards as long as it's consistent with subdivisions A through D, whereas subdivision E says you cannot impose standards other than those in subdivision E. So that's another internal conflict in the um, ADU ordinance. Then, um, subdivision E uh, discusses 25% of multifamily dwelling units, but the legislative history t had at least one and up to as many ADUs as equals 25% of the existing units in multifamily dwellings, whichever is more. So these are issues uh, that have to be sorted out, mm -hmm. but um, that I just wanted to make us aware of. Finally. Um, with respect to junior ADUs, uh, right now that's a maximum of 500 square feet, mm -hmm. but now if you consider subdivision E, ADU, it can be an ADU as long as it complies with 65852.22, which could alter that 500 square foot maximum square footage, which was integral to the affordability component from our perspective when we adopted the junior AD ordinance. So th I just wanted to enunciate those issues more specifically so that we can be prepared to address them when we get more into the weeds okay. at our next meeting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was quick. <laughs> My pen's on fire. <laughs> well, we're recording this, so. <laughs> Good. So I think that's it for marijuana and housing then, and then we can shift to Kevin and um, the changes to the zoning ordinance and other issues that, so Steve, you're welcome to hang out. But you I'll hang out okay. a little bit. What about preservation of trees and views? When are we going to do that? Same. Okay. It's a Kevin okay. uh, issue too. Okay. Uh, any particular order that you guys prefer? No. Kevin, any order that you prefer? Um, since I was staring at it over the weekend, I would probably like to start with section 3.3 zero which has to do with the informal bid limits and the professional service limits if that's okay perfect that's right up my alley that's, okay. that's, that's exactly what i told him mm -hmm. <laughs> sounds so, good so, so that you're, go ahead sorry John. you're talking about cupca the california uniform cost accounting act yes which creates the limits for informal bidding 
and those limits were just increased to $200,000 for an informally bid project, $60,000 for force account work or negotiated work. Kevin, if I can jump in just really Please. quickly. We have adopted PUPCA. Mm -hmm. So for uh, public works projects, uh, yeah, there are certain uh, limits that apply to when you have to do an informal bid, a formal bid, or when you can just negotiate a contract. We've adopted those limits, but there's some um, quirks in our code where, for example, the city manager's authority doesn't automatically increase to match those limits, which we think it should. So at the city manager's authority to issue a public works contract, right now it's $50,000. But I think you've covered most everything. The other part of the, our code that probably isn't quite right has to do with um, informal bid limits requiring three proposals. And I think that's not, that's probably not correct. Correct. We it's a to, best practice, but it's not required under CUPCA. Right. We want to be able to solicit for at least three contractors to do informal bid work. But that doesn't require us to receive the proposals of three. Correct. Otherwise, we could be slowed way down until we get three proposals. So that's true so long as it's under 60K. If it's between 60 and 200K, then we do have to have written proposed, written bids, for even for the informal. But we don't have to advertise. We simply have to transmit our invitation to bid to the list, to our list that we maintain of, uh, of contractors in that field, whether it's electrical or whatever it may be. But for 60K or less, I agree with you, we are not required to have written bids. We can do it, we can pick up the phone and obtain those I, bids. I think what my issue is has to do with, if we solicit for bids at a busy time of year, such as, I'll just for instance say, we're gonna do paving, and everybody else is busy, and maybe we only get one bid. Even at the formal bid level, we could probably still move forward with that, even Correct. if we only got one bid. Correct. So I just want to kind of make that clear too that that's okay if we just get one bid, as long as we solicit it to those on the list. For multiple. Yes. We're required to solicit from our entire list. We're required to update our list once a year of eligible bidders. As long as we transmit the invitation, if it's between 60 and 200K, to that list. Even if we only get one bid, we're, we're absolutely able to and just So and below the 60K, we do not have to? Correct. We can do that by phone, by negotiated contract. We don't have to transmit a bid. The difference for between 60 and 200 is we don't have to advertise. For anything over 200, we have to advertise the bids in the newspaper and trade journals. Um, the other thing is, is that it, 200 is the limit, but we're allowed to go up to 212.5. If, if we estimate it to be 200, we get a mulligan for anything a little bit over that, up to 212.5, so. And I think from a staff's perspective, anytime we get close to that limit, we want to bring it to council anyway. Sure. It just seems like the best thing to do, even though we may not have followed that same process for the informal uh, you know, soliciting for bids. We still bring it to you for a So something some jurisdictions do as a best practice <coughs> is even, all, even though they use CUPCA and informal bidding as a means to streamline, they still report back to the council on consent that they've undertaken this work for this price. I think that's a best practice. I think it encourages transparency, and I think it would be valuable, especially in our community, where 
our residents are very interested to know what we're doing and what we're spending. May I just ask, so I'm catching up to speed on this. I understand the below 60K, 60 to 200, going up to 205. 212.5. 212.5. And then above 200, I understand the, the different things. Are we making changes from how we currently do it? Is it we're saying we want to adopt this? What's the discussion here? We're making consistent, internally consistent Sausalito's ordinances with the, Cali with the California Good. Uniform Cost Accounting Act. the same type of approach when we look at professional services contracts too. Would we want to kind of address that at the same time or maybe simply stick to how we're in compliance with the uh, Uniform Cost Accounting Act at this point? So the CUPCA doesn't apply to professional service agreements. Typically public agencies, particularly if it's a construction manager or an architect or an engineer, utilize a qualifications-based selection approach under the government code 4525 uh, and 4526 because we're not allowed to select certain types of professionals solely based on price. We're required to do a qualifications-based selection. As you recently described to the council, you were undertaking that process with one of our uh, projects. I believe that um, you know, professional services are a different animal because you're paying simply for services, whereas construction, you're paying for labor, equipment, materials, and service, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm not sure that the same levels of um, authority should apply. So, go ahead. I, I think you're right. And so both Mary and I were kind of soliciting to other agencies to see what their limits are. Um, the city manager to sign off on a professional service agreement, let's say um, for San Rafael it's 35000 and you can bring it to the city manager and he can sign off on that. I'm just wondering if we want to kind of pursue that at this point um, as far as some of the code changes, which we can look at, but uh, I'm not sure if you probably have experience with, as well as different agencies. Yeah, so our limit right now is twenty-five. That's right. 25000 so the city manager's contract authority across the board is 25000 whether it's professional services or Mm -hmm. um, and the department head authority is very low. I think it's 5,000. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I've had discussions with Julia um, and her coming in and, and working out this process that that's a very low limit for a department head to have and that's some, something, even if you keep uh, the city manager's authority at 25, you may want to consider upping the department head authority, yeah, maybe even to 10. I don't know what the common practice is right now. My comment to that is that we have very, we have many 
very new department heads. Mm -hmm. And so I think we, uh, while I think, actually I think 25,000, in my experience working with Adam since 2016, we've never been encumbered. We've never been constrained in proceeding with anything we wanted to do by that limit because obviously we meet every two weeks so it's only a two week gap before we want to spend and we can go to the council with something um, so I'm not sure 25 is too low particularly if a huge city like San Rafael is at 35 right I know that was right? my reaction as well I was surprised um, five is probably low but I certainly wouldn't want to go higher than 10 for department heads but again, because we have brand new department heads, there is an interest by residents in knowing how our public works, our community development, our finance department is spending their money. Uh -huh. So, uh, you know, I, I, would, I would love to hear the feedback from the department heads about how their ability to do their job is constrained, mm -hmm. if at all, by the current limit. So I agree with you that because we have you know twice a month council meetings basically that that it's not so much the dollar amount as it is a process question mm -hmm. because that's a whole other layer of staff work mm -hmm. and not that it's daunting but it is a you know a, a different development you have to write a staff report to request and the then authority. how it's processed through um, the finance department is something that i can't really speak to but yulia could give you chapter and verse about the amount of the difference in perspective. I think, Kevin, you know, you probably do more contracting than any other department, um, particularly you know, right now you're in a very busy phase. So we can certainly try and, and flush that out a little bit. Um, I threw that out there because it's part of the whole ordinance. I don't want to hold up the changes to the public works contract changes if this becomes more problematic. Can I just maybe suggest a kind of an ongoing formula versus sure. 10 or 5? If we have this uh, state standard that you know six, we've gone from fifty thousand to sixty thousand for public works contracts, for public works right. contracts, and that'll adjust to sixty-eight or seventy in future years, we just say fifty percent of that amount is what we authorize our city manager, ten percent of that amount is what we authorize our department heads. And that way, it's just it adjusts incrementally um, as we see those kind of best practices. That would be fine. Interesting. Yeah. So, so that would make 30. Adam's contract authority 30 and department heads would six. be six. six. Right? Yeah. And then when it goes to 68, he's 32. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, or 34, right? And, and we could even, as the Cupco limits go up, you know, report to council as a consent yeah. item, hey, this is happening, here's what all the changes are this year. Right. And so it's a little more formulaic than just, you know, we're sitting here going, should be five or have it. It's just it's formulaic, and um, I like that approach. But I would want the city manager contracts just unless they're obviously legal and confidential. I would want that as a consent item, just as we've been discussing with the Cupca. All of them. So it's. I think you're thinking of a summary at some point in time. Yeah. You know, end of the end of the construction season. This is what we had to do informally. Yep. Move forward. Yep. So we can um, move forward and start drafting an ordinance for your consideration. I don't know if we're going to be able to have all of this pulled together in Two by weeks. the 25th, but we can try. Um, and uh, yeah, I can work with, with 20, Kevin. 25th? 
That's our next legislative committee meeting. And that would be in time. Next November. And that would be in time to go on to the council on December 10. Okay, we'll work together. On or, or you know, if that's so, I think some of them are east more um, easily done fixes, and some of them are going to take a little time. But yeah, we will also coordinate with Yulia um, from the finance side of it. Yep. Great. Thank you. Um, we've got PG&E or trees and views. Let's do trees and views. But um, may I just mention a couple of things for agendas? setting for our legislative committee while we're talking about public works projects. So one is the cleaning of catch basins. So uh, with all of the vegetation management that's been going on, I know that's something that some residents are concerned about. Um, so I'd like to have a discussion about that at, at some future date. N and perhaps not even at the legislative committee uh -huh. level, but at the council level. Um, but perhaps in conjunction with our um, disaster preparedness mm -hmm. list, which is coming to us at our next legislative committee meeting, I think, if that's the direction of council tonight. And then um, the other thing is um, I'd like the legislative committee to consider how it, what it can do to facilitate the work with the Sausalito Marin City Sewer District in terms of our talks about um, c consolidating. Um, there's a concern that we're not currently meeting the EPA, the standards of the EPA consent decree in the Marin ship. So that's something that, um, as, uh, but, but that's something that should be considered as we consider this consolidation but I want to know how the legislative committee can, if at all, facilitate those discussions with Sausalito Marin City Sewer District. Just a question, because mm -hmm. I'm not sure where we are process-wise yeah. with that. Is that not going through the sewer committee? It is. So, and who is on? Ray and me. So we have to be mm -hmm. careful we're not cross-pollinating. Yeah. Exactly. Um, because then we would have a quorum discussing the same issues. Yeah. But, um, you know, we can certainly work together to look at this issue about Yeah. Our reports and everything annually and, and meeting, we haven't gotten any concerns back from the EPA. Yep. Um, I would suggest that that is really part of the sewer committee, but okay. if there are issues that kind of, sorry, bubble out of that, um, <laughs> that are more <laughs> legislative and, you know, yeah. ordinance provisions, yeah. maybe those could cross over, but yeah. we, need, we do need to be really careful we're not having a brown egg problem. Right? Yep. Yeah. It, it, Process-wise, we're at a preliminary phase. We're still trying to get those consultants on board to give us a preliminary report. So, we haven't cool. gotten too far yet. We're getting there. Excellent. Are there trees and views? Did you want to start with that? Because I have my individual little issues with trees and views, but if there's something bigger that I'm missing. I think this was um, really focused on public trees as kind of an outshot of the meeting that we had with the residents that were concerned about the trees that came down. Oh. Process for noticing and everything go. else regarding public trees. Is this dumpy trees that came down? No, this no. was up on prospect. Yes. And some neighbors were very. Some concerned. neighbors sought a permit to remove trees, but their neighbors were concerned at the lack. There was there 
the trees to be removed were tagged, but the tags weren't visible from all angles, and so some neighbors were surprised that the trees had been removed and are now seeking to have the trees replaced with non-pyrophytic trees um, at either that applicant's or the city's expense. Um, and so we had an extensive meeting with a whole bunch of folks uh, to understand the issue. And what we promised to do was to consider revising the manner in which we give notice of tree removal or other types of vegetation management that could have an adverse impact on neighbors. So For example, publicly or publicly owned properties, trees, if we're going to take action on them, we have to give some notice. So right now we tag them we do. with we a tree tag that basically says, hey, we're thinking about taking this tree has been marked as considered to be coming out. Um, but we don't mail notice, we don't... We don't do the 300-foot notice like we would for, you know, any other construction type of project. And very different than a private tree issue. So our ordinance is pretty um, detailed about what happens if you want to get a tree permit okay. uh, to alter or uh, remove a tree. And then there's a whole view section of it as well. And is there a proposal on how we want to change? Well, we talked about a few things. And Kevin, I don't know if you had any other... Um, ideas about it. One thing we talked about very briefly was whether there was um, some kind of a public notice that goes out to, you know, to a certain number of feet of people who are, would be impacted, right. and also whether or not there's an administrative um, hearing of some sort, sort of like an admin design review. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I, I don't think the council's going to want to be hearing these. Mm -hmm. I will tell you that, that having the Planning Commission sit as the Trees and Views Committee, in my opinion, has been very successful. Sure. They're you know, really good at making findings and understanding that process, so that's been that's been great. Um, but again, their agendas are going to get you know uh, impacted, and there is a need for the city to be able to deal with its vegetation without you know a huge um, process. And so we're trying to balance the public's need for input and our need to be able to manage our property. Um, so let me turn it over to Kevin if he's got any. No, that's that. true. I mean, we could follow something like we have for CEQA, which you notify 300 feet around this entire mm -hmm. area. We could do that. In this particular case, I'd probably push back a little bit. These were acacia trees. They needed to come out. They were, you know, it's not the type of tree that you want to have there. And it's in the public right away itself. So it, it is kind of a balancing act of, you know, at what point do you want to notify folks that you're doing regular work um, throughout our streets, taking out, maybe taking out a tree, maybe not. At the same time, while removal of those acacia trees was definitely justified, it did have an adverse, a potentially adverse impact to the property value of some of the surrounding properties. And so what the neighbors were asking is not that we don't remove the tree, but that we, as part of removing the tree, have in place a plan for replacement of that tree where appropriate with the proper uh, trees. And so right now there's a year gap between the removal of the tree, at least it's going it's to be at least a year before any replacement is made. Mm -hmm. And had we gone through an administrative review process or had there been the ability of affected neighbors to provide feedback, perhaps the tree removal plan would have been accompanied with a tree replacement plan. So I think what we might want to do is let's take a look at the code and see if we can offer some constructive uh, language within the code to probably include some notification via mail for the out 
certain distance outside of wherever the work is going to occur. Yeah, and I think there's probably a distinction between removal and maintenance work mm -hmm. on trees. You know, um, there's also just distinction between undesirable trees and desirable trees, even though people will still want replacement trees for screening. Um, and obviously, there's an exception if it's an emergency, mm -hmm. and there's an exception in our code for that already. If the tree needs to come out because it's an emergency, it comes out. Um, and then, I mean, I guess there's also some sense of you know a useful life. <laughs> of a tree, you know, unfortunately they're not going to last forever as much as we love them and we've got some really mature vegetation in Sausalito and it's starting, you know, to need to be replaced at some point. Um, balanced against the whole, all the issues we've been hearing from the fire department about, you know, defensible space and what's cleared and everything else. But there's, it's a real, it's a real juggling act for and everybody. it's because we have become a um, wooey. Then uh, we've adopted the WUI ordinances that require much more extensive vegetation management that it's important for us to consider these provisions at this time. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I, I just point, I, one, I think it's wise for us to notify within a certain range people that we're planning to remove a tree or do some work. doesn't mean it restricts us from doing it. It's a notification. And we need to put in place the flexibility for emergencies, for fire, for you know, dead trees or what have you. But I do think notification is good, as, as Councilman Cox has said. Um, it allows us to address those situations where we may need to replace trees or mm -hmm. protect someone's home value. Um, or to even become aware yeah. of an issue that a neighbor may have that we're not aware of. Right. So I think there's an, an easy intermediate step before we bring forward any kind of ordinance revisions. And I will tell you, every time we touch the trees and use ordinance, it's a yeah. It's a very thorny very issue. Discussion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> very thorny. Um, I think you know, from a from a, and I'm looking at uh, Kevin to make sure I'm not uh, speaking out of turn. We're all we're all channel, channeling our inner herb today. With Don't our, go out on a limb, Mary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 okay. I mean, we could add that as a process, even our own internal process, if we're doing. I mean, I would say significant uh, alteration or removal of trees. You particularly, I, I don't know if there's a distinction between when it's at the bequest of another property owner or it's a city-initiated process, but that's something we could just do. Yep. Um, but then bringing forward revisions to the ordinance, I think, is going to take a little work. Yep. And I don't think we can get that to you this, you know, by December 10th. Yeah. Um, especially if we're going to try and push forward on these other things. But I think we can keep it moving forward. I think there, it would be useful to get input from even planning commissioners or planning staff about the other portions of the Trees and Views Ordinance to, because it's, there's some things that are just not easy to deal with and we might be able to do some cleanup that would facilitate an easier process for everybody. Yeah, there are quite a few little things in there. I'll make it quick. When we have trees that are not on private property, they're on public property, but the city never planted them. Uh -huh. How do we address those? You know, it's, it's those type of things that eventually we'll need to sit down and deal with it. That's a really good point and a point that you made um, when we talked with Councilmember Cox before. So all these trees in the right-of-way mm -hmm. are really in people's yards. Yeah. And they don't mind maintaining them until they're problematic and right. then they're our problem. Right. Um, and I think Kevin had mentioned that maybe it was San Rafael, that trees in the right-of-way that aren't city trees aren't city trees. They're private property owners' trees. So. You know, if our right-of-way developed is this wide, but the actual paper right-of-way is this wide, 
it's that difference, that planting strip of what looks like somebody's front yard, yeah. that would be a difference. That would be a big change in Sausalito, but one from a liability perspective would be a, a good one. And quite honestly, the liability should be delegated to the person most capable of absorbing it, and that is the homeowner who sees, observes, manages that tree day to day, mm -hmm. as opposed to the city who spot checks or inspects when apprised of an issue. Mm -hmm. right. Right. Okay. Well, it seems like there's alignment here. We won't have anything by the 25th, but I think we'll make progress on how we want to revise the trees and use ordinance, mm -hmm. right. just so we have better notification for homeowners and, uh, and address these kind of gray areas. So it's 11, and you guys have other meetings you're trying to get to. But let's just quickly. want to talk about pg &E Yes, yeah, so before Kevin leaves. So uh, what I would like us to consider, and this may be totally infeasible, but um, our residents were, as we, as we know from our special meeting on November 1, were severely impacted adversely impacted by the five-day shutoff with very little notice by PG&E. So even if it's only a token measure, I would like to adopt certain standards that we require PG&E to meet when it's going to shut off our power. So for example, we should require at least a 48-hour notice if our power is going to be shut off, if our power is going to be shut off. And we should consider requiring more notice if our power is going to be shut off for more than 48 hours, for example. So, um, and I also would like to figure out how we can become better informed about how PG&E makes the decision. Because one of our power outages had half of the town with no power and half of the town with power. And so it, it boggles my, but then the next one, everybody was out. So it's mind boggling that the transmission lines that they said they had to take down or turn off mm -hmm. affected hillside dwellers and not uh, flat land dwellers. <laughs> um, <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> And so I'd like us to consider how, what, what we could require of PG&E. We may not be able to require anything. They may, uh, their regulations may preempt ours. So we may not be able to require anything. But I would at least like to consider undertaking some kind of token um, resolution or ordinance uh, that we share with them and that I'd like to have that as an example for other municipalities to start to require the, some minimum basic standards that any utility should undertake in its planning efforts. I, I fully agree with Councilman Cox, but it might be symbolic. Yeah, it I think it's be. hard for Sussley to enforce on PG&E, one of the 500 cities. Yeah. Here's our notifications, but I, I imagine the state's going to do something we should be staying on top of. Um, on your latter item, what is powered on and what's powered off? I'd like to know which transmission lines service which parts of our town? Yeah. And have that mapped out. Yeah. And know, are there 
does PG E have four options, three options, twelve options? Um, when it it's goes to very unclear, in. so that at least um, we'll start getting a better idea of what the impact could be on our city and what are the most likely areas that are going to be shut down more often than not. Um, this is going to happen every year for the next several years until PG E fixes its infrastructure. So I think there's th some related items to that as well, which include the generator issue that yes. came up at your um, special meeting and you know, noise and all those types of things. And you may want to look at what other jurisdictions are proposing to do with generator issues. And the other thing I'd like to do as part of our, as part of the work of the disaster preparedness um, committee or perhaps the special committee that was formed is um, put together a list of uh, measures that our residents can utilize to mitigate their uh, inconvenience and harm. So for example, you can spend $100 to buy a box, a little box that goes between your refrigerator plug and the wall that charges so that when your so that when the power goes off, your refrigerator will remain powered for f up to 5 days. There are lanterns that you can buy at West Marine that you put on your deck for a day that will then light your house for five days. So I'd like us to, uh, as a city or as a committee, put together, as part of our lessons learned, some of the things, just as we tell people what to put in their grab bag, their go bag, I'd like to give people a list of things they can do to mitigate uh, the the consequences of That's future wonderful, wonderful public suggestion. safety power shutoffs. A wonderful suggestion of here's you know things that you can plan yes. for future power shutoffs, much like when you have to plan for you know survival. Care. Exactly. Um, you know, just a recommended list. I'd also I'd also ask <coughs> since you folks are probably well connected to different groups that we might have somebody who reaches out to the CPC. Mm -hmm to see if they're doing some of the same things that you're talking about as mm -hmm. far as putting some constraints on PG&E for notification. Love it. As well as others. Um, I, can, I can reach out to San Rafael. Uh, Mary Beth Bushy is part of the CPC. She may have a contact for us. Perfect. To find out if, if they're doing the same thing. Uh, I'd want to be kind of in line with whatever they suggest so that we're not in conflict. I and love then, it. Um, as far as service areas, what, even though we've been through just two of these, I'm not too sure PG knows exactly where their systems feed and yeah. doesn't feed. Yes. So that would be an interesting conversation that we need to have with them. Yes. See if we can kind of narrow them down <laughs> a little bit. It, it would be very helpful. Kevin, uh, one last thing. Uh, congratulations on you handled Miss Emily's sewage problem. <laughs> um, but it was eye-opening. I, I do think um, if we ever could find an understanding of where there are these electric pumps, uh, to at least notify those families that they have one. I'm certain that many people don't even know that they could be exposed to that same risk. Um, and uh, that, that would also be, I would suggest we make a change to our code at some point to say that you know when somebody puts in an injector pump system, they have to have some connection on the outside so that you can put a generator onto it and make it work. What we found out with Emily is that even though she had this system in place, there's no way that we could hook a generator up mm -hmm. And she was kind of out of luck. We're lucky that the power came on when it did. Otherwise, right. it would have been a problem. But even, you know, 
for people to know that they have such one, where they find alternative places to not, not flush, right? Yeah. You could extend the life of your capacity of that situation. Yeah, We're, we'll need to work on that internally to see if we can put a system in place where we can track that stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, it's just track and notify. I mean, I know that at my home I have one, and I just never, never crossed my mind until I heard it at the at that meeting. Um, well, you're lucky. Yes. <laughs> yes. My son is not as well trained. <laughs> None of them are. Mm -hmm. sons, yeah. Okay. All right. Great. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Do you want to be ready to? Yeah, move to adjourn. Adjourn. Second. Eleven oh seven. Thank you, everyone. See you later uh, this evening.